Hello again. Welcome to our twice-weekly broadcast at apologetics.watch, program devoted to providing uh, important information on issues in a, a Christian apologetics, historical theology, and biblical interpretation. Uh, today we're going to be talking about an extremely important topic, um, and that is the issue of prenatal infanticide, or what we would commonly call abortion. Um, and so as we get ready to settle in specifically what should a Christian think about abortion, which brings us immediately to what does the Bible say about abortion? What is God revealed? What is the ultimate standard? Um, and so that is what we'll be diving into today. I am your host, Christian apologist and researcher, Luke Wayne. Here is my uh, uh, producer, Aaron, who will be uh, keeping us hopefully... Uh, on time, forget. on track. <laughs> I always forget you're going to do that. So, uh, uh, but let's get right to it. Uh, so this is uh, a rather somber topic, uh, a difficult, difficult topic to get into, um, but, but a necessary one. Today's day and age. I mean, last year, 2019, um, Prenatal infanticide, human abortion, was literally the leading cause of human death worldwide uh, with no competition. Uh, so we, uh, this, this is a serious matter, and we know we can talk medically about the fact that a, an unborn human is still completely and fully a unique human life, but ultimately that human life has dignity, that human life has value and rights because that human life is granted such by God. And this is a, so for the Christian, it's going to come first and foremost back to what has God said? What does the Bible say? What has God revealed about scripture? And so wasting no time that is what I really want to jump into today, is, uh, is there a biblical basis for a pro-life ethic? Is there a biblical basis to oppose human abortion? And spoiler alert, yes, there absolutely is. Um, but let's walk that out, because you're often going to hear brought up the fact that the word abortion, or any direct synonym thereof, does not occur in the Bible. And that's true. That's true. Um, if you go on Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or some equivalent, you know, Bible search uh, site or program and you type in the word abortion, you're not going to find a direct reference by name in Scripture. But what Scripture does is it lays out an ethic of what, what is a human, why humans are valuable, and under what circumstance a human life can be taken. And when we walk all of that out, very clearly and plainly, unmistakably, the act of prenatal infanticide, of human abortion, is completely forbidden by Scripture. And that is the ethic on which the Christian must stand. Not because I said so, or because modern politics said so, but because God, from all eternity past, <laughs> has said so and revealed so to us in his word, by his unchanging moral standard. And so let's go in and take a look at how we discover, 
how we derive that unchanging truth. So we would begin at the beginning in the book of Genesis when God first creates man and tells us uh, very important facts about who man is and why he's valuable. And we're told, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air or the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 27 through 29. And so here we see that God made man as in humanity, male and female, blessed them, blessed them to be fruitful and multiply. The multiplication of man, man's offspring, was a blessing from God and an intention that he placed on man. And all human beings were equally created in the image of God. Now, this differs from pagan cultures around that used similar language of an, the image of a god or the image of the gods uh, in some contexts, but would would define it as a, a king or a ruler was made in the image in the image of God, but his subjects weren't. This, this wasn't about physical shape or size or any particular quality. It was about well, to whom God gave gave uh, gave dominion, to whom God gave his creation, and in this sense, God gave it not to a man or a woman, but to all men and women. God gave it to humanity, male and female. This, was the, this is the distinctive idea that Genesis reveals to us. Man, humanity made in the image of God. But what we go on to see in Genesis, after the flood, God speaking to Noah, making a covenant with all humanity, um, but he speaks these important words, deriving something else from the fact that all humanity is made in the image of God. And God said, uh, oh, this is more in Genesis 129. We'll move on. Here we go. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now the... Oh. Uh, so whoever sheds blood, uh, sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. This is the, the key phrase here. Why is it wrong to shed human blood? Not because a man has certain attributes, not because a woman has attained a certain stage of development, has certain, but because man is made in the image of God. It is therefore wrong to, to shed human blood. It is wrong to kill. And in fact, it says, uh, it goes on again, be fruitful and multiply, increase a colossal. It, it goes on to connect this idea immediately with reproduction, with children. These are tied so closely together. Both times it's stated in Genesis. And so the idea that children are blessing from God, but that share in being made in the image of God, share in that protection, that right, that dignity, this is the biblical definition of men and women, of humanity, and of why it is wrong to kill a human being. Why is murder wrong? Because 
the person is human. Because being, being made in the image of God gives one a unique privilege, unique right, unique dig- dignity, and to, do, to kill a human is not just violence against a human, it is a front against God himself. And so we could stop here and we would already have a sufficient biblical ethic to say it is wrong to destroy a human at any stage in development. The human doesn't have to be big enough or strong enough or smart enough to be worthy of that protection. They simply have to be made in the image of God. And that is, that, that is not about shape or, 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 or parts or attributes. It is something that God privileges all of humanity with. But we, even if we don't stop there, if we keep going, all we're going to find is more foundation for the fact that this is true even prior to birth. So let's keep going. There are many places we could turn here. For time's sake, I'm going to focus on a few that I think are particularly important. And to start with, in the prophet Jeremiah, the book opens... Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this verse that isn't relevant to our subject. But to focus in on what is, right at the beginning of Jeremiah, something is established about Jeremiah and, by extension, about about humans about us and that is that before I formed you in the womb what was in the womb prior to birth did not later become Jeremiah it was Jeremiah God attributes personal existence and identity to the individual in the womb what was formed in the womb was already Jeremiah And actually, we see this assumption continue later in the book. And if you've read Jeremiah, you're going to understand when we, the next passage we flip to, it's a hard one to read because Jeremiah lived at a very difficult time. Being an Old Testament prophet, being a prophet of God, was never an enviable calling. The prophets were persecuted, were ostracized, uh, they suffered greatly preaching an unpopular message in a difficult time because that is why God called and raised up prophets was to to preach difficult messages that people needed to hear. But even among the prophets, Jeremiah is a sad story. He was a man of many tears, a man of many griefs. He's the man who wrote the book of Lamentations, a man who suffered because of the sin of his people and suffered because of the exile of his people And he suffered along with them. He suffered also at their hands. And because of this, we read many painful, agonized words. Jeremiah is a real man. When we read his words, we're not reading a mythic, stoic hero of some uh, pagan legend who, who meets every problem with emotionless, perseverance. Jeremiah struggled. He hurt. He he grieved. He lamented his calling. He often wished that he was not the man God had called to be a prophet. 
And so the passage we're going to turn to, I have to explain all that building up because the passage we're going to turn to is a hard passage where Jeremiah is so distraught and so depressed that he is wishing he had never been born. And clearly, when you read through the book of Jeremiah, the message that we're supposed to walk away with is not that Jeremiah really should never have been born. Not that it would have been better if Jeremiah wasn't born, but we're supposed to recognize his agony and his pain as he expresses these words. But the words tell us something about what Jeremiah understood about human existence. So he says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities of, that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. You can feel his pain when you read this. And again, Jeremiah is not right that it actually would have been better for him to be killed in the womb. In fact, God already said in the beginning, it was God's plan before Jeremiah was ever born for him to fulfill this prophetic ministry. But in expressing this lament, what do we see? That if it had happened, if someone had ended Jeremiah's development, stopped, stopped him, you know, cut him up and ended, ended him in the womb, it would have been ending his human life. It would have been killing him. That is the language, that is the language that Jeremiah uses to describe an abortion killing a person so that his mother is his grave. A man who was alive, a person, a human who was alive and who another person willfully ended their life, killing them so that their mother would be their grave. Jeremiah describes abortion as killing a human being. Now, what we already saw is that it is wrong to kill a human being because they are made in the image of God. And in Jeremiah, we see from the words of God himself and from the words of Jeremiah that the human life in the womb is a human life, an individual human who already has personal existence, identity, and value as a human made uniquely in the image of God. So Jeremiah continues um, in his in his lament there, but as we as we carry on, you know we've we've seen what we need to see in that. As we we carry on here, um, the law also speaks to this issue, not directly, but in a way that has has obvious uh, ramifications on it. In Exodus twenty one twenty two through twenty five, we read a case law, a specific a specific situation where the law is attempting to apply God's more general moral commands legally in a specific scenario. And so the scenario here we read is when men strive together, when men are fighting with each other, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. 
and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you will pay, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So what's the scenario here? Two men are fighting and they hit a, 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 bro a broken, or hit a pregnant woman so that uh, her child, her children come out. But there's no harm. Then he's fined. But if there is harm, he is punished in proportion to the harm. Now, to be, to be completely uh, accurate with the way that this text has been read, there are interpreters who, uh, who deal with this entirely with harm coming to the woman or not coming to the woman. There are actually, in fact, um, pro-abortion advocates who try to appeal to this passage to claim that it supports the idea because there are a minority of translations who render the phrase uh, so that her children come out as so that she has a miscarriage. And again, to be as fair to the facts as possible, that translation is not uh, only you know, liberal pro-choice ad advocates trying to force that into the translation. If you go back as early as the John Wycliffe translation in the 14th century, he, uh, he uses, uses a phrase that would mean the same thing as a miscarriage. He, uh, he uses, says that the child is deadborn. Um, and so there has, there has been an interpretation that this is referring to a miscarriage and strictly dealing with injury to the woman. However, that has not been historically the majority translation and there is the, or the majority interpretation, and there's very good reason for that. The reason is that the Hebrew term here simply means that the child comes out, as the ESV renders it here. Um, so some, will, some translations will go the other way and say, is born prematurely, implying that the child survives. The Hebrew word by itself doesn't imply anything one way or the other. It just says, so that the child comes out. Um, normally, if this Hebrew word is meant to refer to a miscarriage, there will be an added qualifying word, so that the child comes out dead, or something to that effect. Um, so the fact that the word is used with no qualifier seems to be intentional here. The most natural, plain reading of the passage is mentions that the child comes out without making any reference to its health. Why? Because the whole rest of the passage is dealing with the question of the child's health. The child comes out with no harm, or the child comes out with harm, or even with death. And depending on the level of harm, that's the level of punishment. That is the, the, the most natural and plain reading in context, especially since if you're just saying if two guys are fighting and they hit a woman and the woman gets hurt, then they should have to be paid for it. The law has already established that fact. There's other, other sections of Exodus dealing with assault. The only unique situation about this case that makes it worth bringing up is the child. So the language and the context and the flow of the argument all best fit with a reading that this is talking about the life of the life or injury of the child. If people are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman and cause the child to come out, if that child is alive and healthy, they're fine. 
If the child is injured, they're punished in accordance with the injury, up to and including life for life. This shows that the law valued the child as an equal person and that the punishment of injuring or killing that unborn child was equally proportionate as it would be if it were a grown man. However, there's another argument that fewer pro-choice arguments, uh, pro-choice advocates will make, but that some do if they know to look for it. And that's the, the issue of the ancient translation of the Sept, called the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation from before the New Testament times, which translates this passage in a very interesting fashion. Um, it reads, Now if two men fight and strike a pregnant woman and her child comes forth not fully formed, he shall be punished with a fine. According as the husband of the woman might impose, he shall pay with judicial assessment. But if it is fully formed, he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The Septuagint translation is... Is, is, is interesting. Where is it getting this idea of formed and unformed? Well, it's, it seems to be a creative translation uh, bringing in categories from the Hellenistic world, but it's based on the fact that the Hebrew words for harm and form are very similar to one, to one another. So it could have been a, a mere copyist error, or it could have been a clever midrashic translation trying to make a point to a more Hellenistic audience. But the point here that the pro-choice advocate would be trying to make is you see the child is only valued once they reach a certain stage of development. Now, first of all, this doesn't reflect the actual Hebrew text. So that doesn't ultimately matter to what God originally revealed. But even more so, what you see even in this Hellenistic reinterpretation of the passage is that at any stage in development, you are punished for killing the child. It's just that the, punish, the punishment is greater if the child is fully formed. In fact, we see this fleshed out in one of the earliest interpreters of the Septuagint, Philo of Alexandria, uh, a Jewish scholar who lived at roughly the same time period as Jesus in the, the first century. He was born a little bit earlier and lived a little bit longer, but roughly the same time period as Jesus, so New Testament time period, early New Testament time period. So we see Philo writing commenting on the Septuagint's rendering of this law and says, but if anyone has a contest with a woman who is pregnant and strikes her a blow on her belly and she gives birth, if the child which was conceived within her is still unfashioned and unformed, he shall be punished as, punished as a fine, both for the assault which he committed and also because he has prevented nature, who was fashioning and preparing that most excellent of all creatures, a human being, from bringing him into existence. But if the child which was conceived had assumed a distinct, a distinct shape in all its parts, having received all its proper connective and distinctive qualities, he shall die for such a creature as that is a man whom he has slain while still in the workshop of nature. So Philo, looking at the Septuagint, comes to the conclusion any abortion or any killing of an unborn child at any stage of development is a crime that ought to be legally punished directly because you've stopped the development of a human life. He just sees because of the, the way that the Septuagint reinterpreted things for a Hellenistic audience or by uh, a misreading of the Hebrew word, 
that he reads categories in that would make the other a greater offense, but all of them should be a crime in this context. So the Septuagint ultimately still views the law as stating that ending the life of a human child in the womb at any stage of development is a crime. But that said, does the Bible allow for a category of a certain early unformed stage of development that is not quite human? And really the answer is still no. If we look at the text of scripture as it was revealed, that's not what we would come to. Uh, oh, one more, one more quote worth reading. I forgot I had this slide in there, and I, I think it's worth going into. It's just John Calvin's commentary on that same passage in Exodus that we just read. He states, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and, at, and uh, it is an almost monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought securely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. So there's Calvin's reading long before our modern political divides over the issue of abortion. When he read the passage in Exodus, what he walked away from of what that passage was saying. Now, that said... Uh, and uh, Josephus, the you know what this this we'll look at this this uh, this quote next episode. Uh, worth noting on the law, but we'll come back to this next episode and look at it more. Um, just for time's sake, we're going to move on for now. So, can do do we have biblical reason to believe even in the earliest stage of, stages of development that a child in the womb is human? The answer is yes. Psalm fifty-one five, for example. David laments, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And when you read through the context of Psalm 51, he's re he is repenting his sin. He is repenting the sin. David is repenting the sin that he has committed. He's crying out for God's mercy. And here he takes a turn and he repents not only of what he's done, but of who he is at the very core of his being, recognizing his sin nature that he is possessed from the very beginning of his existence. And where does he trace the beginning of that, that existence back to? Conception. At conception, he not only was already a person, he was already a sinful person. He already had that nature inherited from Adam. David definitely understood, inspired by the Spirit of God, that at conception you are already a human person with moral value and even with moral guilt. Likewise, the gospel dealing with the great miracle of the incarnation teaches us, like in, in Matthew 1.20, reading it uh, as Jesus is coming to earth and taking on the form of a man, not, a, not an adult man, not even a baby in the arms of his mother, the Son of God came to live a human life and began where? But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the angel, and so we see likewise in Luke, when the angel's talking to Mary, 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this and this is the sixth month with her who is also called barren. So conceived, already a son. Jesus came of the Holy Spirit, became a man at the moment of conception. Uh, so we already see from conception, human existence, already a son. We continue, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and and, uh, greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Mary was already the mother of her Lord. And she had just conceived Jesus. She was not going to be the mother of her Lord. She was the mother of her Lord. And the baby in the womb was already experiencing joy. We have here again, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did not cease to be a person for nine months and then become a person again, or even for six months or three months. God took on flesh and became a man from the point of conception. Mary was already his mother. He was already Elizabeth's Lord. John the Baptist was already a child, already a son, already experiencing joy. This is the biblical teaching on humanity, on human value. We know when human life begins. We know what gives human life value, that they are made in the image of God, and we know we do not have the right to kill an innocent human being made in the image of God simply because they are in the image of God, not because of any other attribute or any other quality. To kill an unborn child is to kill a child in the womb so that their mother becomes their grave. From conception, that is a distinct human being whom God loves and blessed that mother with. Whether that mother feels or acknowledges themselves as blessed or not, the child is a blessing and deserving of our protection. And so, from beginning to end, Old Testament and New, the biblical ethic is clear on this issue. Prenatal infanticide is forbidden. God does not condone, does not allow us to take the life of an unborn child any more than he allows us to take the life of any other innocent human being. Well, I hope this overview, and that's all it's been, there is so much more that could be said, but I hope this overview has been helpful to you, and I hope 
that you'll dig into these things deeper, study God's word more, but I hope you will not just leave it theory. You will live out everything we find there, however hard it is, and you will stand for God's truth, what he has spoken, what he has declared, and defend the innocent. Thank you again for tuning in here to apologetics.watch. If you want to see more material by us, by us on this and other subjects, go check out our website or follow us on, uh, on Facebook or, on, uh, uh, or like our page on Facebook, follow our channel on Twitter, and, or on Twitter. No, we're not on Twitter yet, on uh, YouTube. And we, would, uh, uh, we hope to see you guys back next video.